Well, amen to that. We've been preaching on a series. I've been taking everybody through a series called This Present Darkness. And uh, we are currently on week three of this series, and we're going to be back in the book of Ephesians. So if you would remember correctly, last week we were specifically in 1 Peter chapter 5, and we looked at verses 8 through 10 as we talked about the important truth that we do not stand alone. Well, today we'll be in Ephesians chapter 6. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open up there to Ephesians chapter 6. And we're specifically going to be on through looking through verses 12 through 17 in what is the famed passage of the armor of God. So Ephesians chapter 6. Would you join me once more in a moment of prayer? Father, we thank you for this time that we get to gather as your people, your church under this building, Lord. We understand that the church is comprised of people. And Father, I pray today that as we explore your word, as we look at the scriptures that you have divinely inspired, that we would take its words to heart that we would understand better for ourselves how to live out our faith and more specifically, how to put on the full armor of God. Father, we pray against the enemy. We pray against any attacks and we pray, Lord, that your kingdom would come. Father, give us ears to hear the words that you are speaking into our lives and eyes to see the things that you are doing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, did you guys come excited to hear a word from the Lord today? I hope you did. I hope you did. Because you see, every single time that we gather as God's people, I think we should come with an expectancy to hear God and to expect him to move in and through our lives. We'll definitely talk more about that next week as Roger will actually be delivering the message for us on a very special Sunday, Pentecost Sunday. But I want to remind everybody in the church today that when we gather, we should gather with expectation for God to move in our lives and that we would leave this place a little different, hopefully a little better and a little bit more encouraged and wise as we gain knowledge through God's word. Well, I want to remind everybody for a disclaimer, especially if you haven't been here for the past few weeks, that even though we are doing a series called This Present Darkness, where we're exploring the kingdom of darkness, where we're exploring the person of Satan, demons, and talking about the demonic realm, which is a real, real part of the world that we live in, that we are not doing that to engage in an unhealthy fixation on this subject but rather that we are doing it so that we can have a biblical understanding of the spiritual battle that we find ourselves in so that we can rightly know for ourselves the real adversary that exists and how to fight, how to fight well. Amen? Amen. So that is the posture in which we are doing this. So 
as I thought about the sermon this week, the full armor of God, I couldn't help but think about my own experience. So about 10 years ago is when Michaela and I decided to move our lives to Denver, Colorado. And, and we did that specifically so that I could attend graduate studies at Denver Seminary. And when we came out here, we came from South Florida. And if any of you have been from South Florida before or been there, it is hot. So right now, my mother, who's, who's in the congregation with us, she's loving our weather right now because she came from a brutally hot, I mean, it is like you're standing in the surface of the sun at times in Florida. Well, I remember I left Florida and it was around 87 degrees when I left Florida in February. So the middle of our winter here, it was in the 80s over there. And you see, I grew up in Florida for most of my life, and winter climate was something still very foreign to both Michaela and I. Sure, we've had visits to other colder climates, but nothing quite like Colorado, and not totally committing to that climate. So we were committed, though, and we came out here, and of course, the shoes that we had on our feet were nothing other than flip-flops. And on the way to Colorado, it started to snow. And my wife and I, we didn't know what to do. We didn't know what snow tires were on a car, let alone we literally had to drive to the nearest gas station in order to buy this barbaric device that we've never seen in our lives before called a snow scraper for your windshield. What made matters worse is I was trying to apply water on the windshield because it was getting so dirty from all of the snow that was freezing, and I was pressing down the water button, and nothing was coming up, and I was scratching my head saying, well, I just filled the thing. I don't understand why it's not, it's not shooting its water onto the windshield. Well, I didn't know that you needed to buy sub-freezing weather windshield wiper fluid. So we finally get into Colorado and we move into the city of Lakewood. And thankfully, we're able to unpack all of our, our, our gear that we brought in our U-Haul and got our place settled. And Sunday came around the corner and this was mid-February. And what happens to two Floridians that only have flip-flops and just learned how to snow scrape a windshield? We get over 10 inches of snow. It was a record blizzard. I think we got 14 inches of snow. And of course, we're Christians. It's Sunday. We're going to church. And Michaela and I decide that we are going to walk to the, local, uh, to the nearest church. And I think like I'm hiking through Antarctica or trying to summit Mount Everest as we go through the church. And honestly, I'm actually having an awesome time because I've never experienced anything like this before. So finally, we go through and we get to church after walking through all the snow and we show up there and there's a sign on the door that says church closed due, due to the snow. <laughs> and we were like, oh, come on. If two Floridians can make it, <laughs> we should be able to have church. No, but I get it. It's not always safe to drive in the snow. But what I've learned since then is having the right tools makes all the difference, right? 
If you're a Floridian and you're coming into a colder environment, you learn very quickly what the right tools are and what the right, right tools aren't. Well, today, as we explore the texts of God's word and we specifically look at God's armor for our lives, we're going to explore what I believe are the right tools or the right items that we need to have in our lives if we are to stand firm against the enemy. So once more, Ephesians chapter 6. Verse 12, it says this. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So once again, if you didn't know, this book of Ephesians was written none other by the Apostle Paul. It's believed that Paul wrote this work while he was under house arrest in Rome, waiting to talk to Caesar for the outcome of his life and what was going to happen next. But it is thought that Paul was entering into the final stages of his life. So he writes this book specifically to a group of people. Now it's debated exactly who is is to receive this book, whether it was actually written to the Ephesians or the Laodiceans. And I'll show you on the map, just because I wanted to show you that either way, that, that this, is, this is the region of Ephesus in the Asian region of Ephesus, which is modern day Turkey. But the next slide shows you that either way, Ephesus and Laodicea were really close to each other. And they were both among the seven churches of Asia that reference in the book of Revelation. So either way, though, Paul writes this work in some ways as kind of final thoughts rounding out his life. So I think we should pay close attention to it, not just because it's a book in the Bible, but because really I think Paul is offering here some of his late stage wisdom. You see, he's learned a lot, he's thought a lot, and now he's offering, I think, some of the most important lessons that he's ever given. And it's this topic of the enemy. It's this topic of the enemy. But I want you to notice something that I think is a, a, a constant reminder within this text, and that is specifically what words do you see continue to come up within the book of Ephesians and specifically in chapter six? It's this phrase that he continues to use about standing firm. 
And you see, I think verse 12 and verse 13 are, in particularly, are particularly important. And what word unites them between verses 12 and 13? And Chris, if you can put them back on the screen. It's this word that links both verses 12 and then the next verse, verse 13, together. And that's the word, therefore. And anytime, as I've said before in scripture, you see the word therefore, you need to ask what it's there for. You see, this word therefore is a logical continuance. It's linking verse 12 and verse 13 together. And we preached on verse 12 a few weeks ago on the importance of understanding that there is a real battle going on. Well, verse 13 gives the logical progression that if there is a real battle going on, then what do we need to do? We need to put the full armor of God. And more specifically, we need to be able to stand firm. In today's message, I'm going to be preaching on this big idea concept that God gives us the tools to stand our ground. Normally, I wait to give that to the end of the service, but I want you to specifically know that in the front side of this message because it'll continue to come up, that God gives us the tools to stand firm. So we continuously we see this word coming up within scripture to stand to stand firm to continue to stand firm and this word stand which is from the greek word anthistemi and i'll put that on the screen for you anthistemi specifically means to stand against to oppose i like the last portion of it to resist. So when Paul is telling us as Christians that we need to stand firm against the enemy, what is he really saying? He's saying that not only do we need to stand against the kingdom of darkness and oppose it, but rather that we need to resist it. Because you see, church, there are times where the strategy of the enemy is to entice us to give into a lifestyle or a way of life that doesn't honor God. But what does Paul mean here in verse 13 with this phrase that he uses of the day of evil? It says, therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything to stand. Well, this day of evil is is typically theologically thought of two different concepts. One, it's kind of, it kind of stands in similarity, but in opposition to the day of the Lord, which is when we know that Jesus will come back. And similar to this, the day of evil is thought of when Satan is at his peak, when the fight is at its worst. 
That's one thought of what this day of evil is. But it also could be understood as a day of evil within our own lives. When we feel like temptation is at its highest, when the enemy is is attacking us at his worst. And what Paul, I think, is trying to say here is that when this is going on in your lives, that you must stand firm against the enemy. But here's the beautiful thing. Last week, we talked about the person of Satan, and we talked specifically about who he is, his origins, and oftentimes how he tries to come against us. Well, this week, we're going to look at not only the kingdom of darkness, but how to stand firm in that. And specifically, Paul talks about what? The armor of God. And there's six items that comprise what Paul calls the full armor of God. And I'll put them on the screen for you here. The first is the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of readiness, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit. What's interesting is, is that the order that Paul actually lists these armor pieces in are likely the same order that a Roman soldier would have to put these pieces of armor on. And it's thought of that the reason why Paul specifically thinks about these armors is one, because Isaiah actually talks about some of them within his book, but two, if Paul was under Roman house arrest, he was most likely visited by, or or most likely chained to a Roman soldier. So he got a very clear example of what somebody would have looked like on a daily basis with a full set of armor on. A real life example. Now, I think when I used to, when I first learned of the armor of God and really learned about it, I was around 15 years old and I remember a pastor preaching and saying, you need to put the full armor of God and then he would list it off. And me really not knowing how to do that or what that meant, I would, I would before going to school each day, I would pray in my room and I would say, Lord, I'm gonna put on your full armor right now. And I would pray in, in my bedroom before going to school and I would list off of everything. And I remember in my room, I would go, I put on the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, and I would go down the list. And in all reality, I don't know if that was really doing anything. I think God was probably smiling on me trying to like fictitiously put on this armor. But really what I think Paul is trying to get to here and what we're going to take the time to talk about is what the biblical understandings are of each one of these items of armor. So we're going to take time today looking at each one of these items of armor. And I want to remind you and keep this in in, in the forefront of your mind that Paul says that we need to put the full armor on in order to stand firm. So I want to make sure that we know that as we look at each one of these armors, that we take the time to realize that in order for us to stand firm, we need to do what? We need every single one of these pieces 
in our lives. Amen? Amen. And that's what we need in order to stand firm. It's kind of it's like when I was a boy, right? If, for those of you that might not know, my father is a carpenter. And that's not me giving like a corny pastor, Kevin, Jesus is a carpenter joke. No, my dad is actually a carpenter. And I remember when I would go to his job, there was a tool that he had for everything. It was like any odd situation that we were in, he had a tool in his handbag for it. So in in many ways, I want us to think about that, that God gives us tools in our own handbag in order for us to resist and stand firm against the enemy. So what is the first tool that Paul brings up? He brings up this tool called the belt of truth, right? The belt of truth. Now, what's interesting about this is if any of you ever read from the RSV, the RSV actually translates it more accurately in some ways to saying, having girded your loins with truth. Now, I don't think that preaches as well. It's kind of a funny way to, uh, to, to talk, and most of us um, m- probably like the belt of truth versus uh, girding your loins with truth, <laughs> but that is probably what Paul was trying to get at. And obviously, it's a little bit more odd in its phrasing, but the Roman soldiers and many people at that time would typically wear a garment, and they would need to put a belt around that garment in order to do anything, in order to do athletics, in order to to fight, in order to engage in any type of activity, it started with what first? Putting that belt around you. But what is the truth that Paul is talking about that we need to put around ourselves? Some people think, and it's not wrong in thinking this, that it's the truth of the gospel. And that is 100% true. We need to have the truth of the gospel in our lives. But I think Paul was actually trying to elicit a different type of idea. And that is specifically truth for truth's sake, or just truth. You see, if you didn't, if you haven't taken time to notice, the idea of truth within this world has been a difficult one to talk about. People use phrases like, well, that's your truth, and this is my truth, and, well, everybody has a different truth, and it sounds like a more of like a Dr. Seuss book than anything else. But in reality, what is truth? You see, I believe that the Bible teaches that truth is not a subjective Truth, meaning that truth does not change based on the person, situation, or time, but that truth is unchanging, that truth is absolute, that truth is objective, meaning that once true, always true. Which is why when we read the Bible or when we discover truths for ourselves, it's so important that we etch that in our own hearts. And I think some of the human pains that we experience, especially within America and today, is the erosion of truth. Young people in particular, I think they feel the weight of this because especially young men don't know anymore what is truth. 
And when you take away truth from somebody's life, what really are they left with? If truth is something that we are to buckle around ourselves, it is very much, in in very many ways, it's kind of how we get everything started. And church, I want to encourage you to know for yourself what truth is. Because there's a lot of talk of truth in this world, and unfortunately, many people are misguided in understanding what truly is true. I mean, look no further than in the entertainment industry. You know, something that was highlighted to me last week that, you know, I didn't really get into, but I think is worth mentioning, is the fact that If Satan is real and if he is attacking God's people, then what mechanisms is Satan trying to use in order to attack God's people and church? Well, I think for one, one of the primary ways that he tries to attack God's people and the church is through what? Changing our definitions of what truth is. I mean, it's sad, but if you look at some of the most popular shows right now in entertainment media, what do you see? You see basic concepts that have been true for years over families start to look totally different. Where instead of things like celibacy and monogamous relationships being concepts that we appreciate and admire, what do you see now? You see open marriages. You see marriages where people have multiple partners, or you see people living within lifestyles that don't even have any resemblance of a marriage commitment or a covenant at all or a duty to one another. You see adultery and fornication as a normal part of life. It's not even a mistake anymore in many of the shows that people watch. Rather, it's just a part of what you do. It's expected. It's understood. It's normal. Divorce, normal. Life is mainly within an entertainment side of things, a pursuit of pleasure. And what I think Satan is trying to do, especially within media, it's trying to convince people in believing that this is what is true and this is what is good. And that really you are missing out on life if you do not get to indulge whatever desires you have because YOLO, you only live once. I mean, do you not see this in entertainment? And make no mistake that when we watch these things, they have an impact on our lives. They influence us and they cause us at the very least to kind of question and wonder and maybe even fantasize what that would be like for ourselves if we engaged in that same kind of activity. And I think for younger people, especially it normalizes a behavior that isn't true and good. And I think Satan has won many victories just over that, which is why we not only need to understand for ourselves and take time to understand what truth is, but we also need to 
put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, I think there's two understandings theologically of what the breastplate of righteousness could mean. And, and scholars kind of, they debate, if you will, on, on what the breastplate of righteousness means. And I actually think that both camps of scholarship are probably right on what the breastplate of righteousness means. And the first common understanding of it is it's the righteousness imputed on us by God. Look at Romans 3.21 to understand that more. And I think that's an important type of concept to understand. That church, one of the works of Jesus on the cross is not just the forgiveness of sins, but the righteousness that is now imputed upon our lives. Which means what? It's kind of fancy language, but what does that mean? It means that when God looks at you, When God looks at you, he looks at you in the same way that he sees his son, with righteousness. And I think it's so important for us as Christians to be able to realize that we were made righteous in Christ. And I think one of the the attacks of the enemy, one of the ways that Satan tries to bring us down is he tries to do what? He tries to walk down into our midst and whisper into our ears and say something like this. You're really no good. You're an unworthy, unholy person. Everybody knows it. God knows it. And you're just an unrighteous scum. And he tries to do what? He tries to bring us down and call into question our character. And look, there might be some truth there, and that's how Satan likes to operate, right? He likes to take a little truth, twist it, and cause it to be something that's infectious for us in the worst kind of way. But according to Jesus, according to God in his word, according to what Jesus was able to do on the cross, that when he died and when he resurrected and when we place our faith in him, we also resurrect into a new life and Jesus' righteousness becomes our righteousness. And that is the beauty of what salvation is about. It's the fact that we could not make a way for ourselves, but what Christ makes a way for ourselves, not through our own works, but through his works. So because of that, his righteousness is our righteousness. That's the first theological interpretation I think is, is, is that Paul wants us to know with the breastplate of righteousness. And I would say the second The second is equally as important, that we need to live as righteous people. We need to live in the way that Christ views us. You know, I think about this often as a father. When I look at my little boy, I look at him with rose-colored glasses, right? You guys get it. You see my son, he does silly things that I need to run and apologize for. But when I see my son, what do I see? I see a boy that in some ways can do no wrong, 
right? I see a boy that just puts a, a, a big smile on my heart and on my face, and I look at him, and I look at him in the best possible light, and I look at him always thinking to myself how great of a man he's going to be, and I'm always thinking at the maximums of what he can accomplish and do. Well, I think in very many ways God sees us like that. He looks at us And if you're a Christian, he looks at us with that level of righteousness that Christ has been able to bring into our lives. And I think God is always looking at us with the maximums of what we can do as his created beings. But sometimes, sometimes we don't live up to the expectations that God puts up on our lives. We don't live, maybe better said, we don't live in the same righteousness that God has imputed upon us. I think that's probably better said. And I think that as Christians, if we are going to stand firm against the enemy, then we need to live as people with good character. We need to live as people with the integrity of righteousness because you see, Satan wants to continue to attack that sense of character in our lives. He attacks us by saying, you are no good. You are unrighteous scum, but yet God sees me as righteous. But I need to not only be seen as righteous by God, but I need to do what? I need to live out that righteousness. Amen? Francis Folkes says this, to neglect what we know to be righteous action is to leave a gaping hole in our armor. I really appreciate that. I'll read that once more. To neglect what we know to be righteous action is to leave a gaping hole in our armor. You know, when I got saved when I was a 15-year-old kid, it was when my faith became my own. It, it, was, it was, my parents' faith was no longer my faith. My faith was my own, if, that, if you understand what I'm saying there. I remember I went to a church retreat, and it was at this retreat that God really got a hold of my life. And I felt a sense of peace, joy, forgiveness, just that sense of that gaping hole was in my life was being filled by the Lord. And I remember as I was riding the bus home from retreat, being so afraid. I wasn't afraid at what God had done. I was afraid that somehow when I went back into my world, back into what was normal for me, that what I experienced in that moment, that encounter with God, that it was just going to wash away. That I was going to get back into the same habits of life that caused me to not experience God's fullness. So I remember when I got home, I went into my room, and the first thing that I did was I took my computer, I started ripping out all the cords from the back of the computer, and I just set it in the hallway. 
And I started taking out all these items in my room that I felt like were going to take away what God did in my heart. Because I didn't want anybody to remove the goodness of God that I was experiencing in my life. And I think the breastplate of righteousness in some ways is a commitment to that. That yes, God sees us as righteous, but yet we need to take in ourselves a seriousness in living out that righteousness. So much so that we're willing to take away things from our lives that have a potentiality of bringing us down a darker path, leading us into sin. You see, because I believe that God gives us the tools to stand our ground, but we need to be able to do what? Use those tools. Next up, Paul talks about feet fitted with readiness, or some people like to call it the shoes of readiness, but Paul would probably call it the sandals of readiness, right? Because that's what Roman soldiers wore. Well, here we also see a, a kind of twofold understanding of what these shoes of readiness are that we need to be able to wear for ourselves. And I think the first one is a sense of preparedness. What, what Paul is communicating here that we as Christians need is we need a sense of preparedness, meaning that we need to be prepared to give an account of what? The hope that is within us. I encourage you to read 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 for more of, of an understanding there. That it is our duty as Christians to bring God's truth to the world. And Isaiah 52, 7, which we'll put on the screen, reminds us of this in saying, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. And I think this is kind of the kind of shoes that we need to have in our lives, that we have a readiness to be able to share that hope within us to the world around us, right? Because when we put shoes on, we're ready to move, right? We're ready to go out. We're ready to be able to deliver to other people what they need. And as we examine our world and see the lack of peace within our world, it's no wonder these shoes are associated with what? Peace. Because we are the ones that God is calling to bring peace into other people's lives. And I think the second interpretation for the feet fitted with readiness are really an example of the Roman sandals that the soldiers wore. They wore hobnailed sandals. And these sandals were very strategic because it allowed during battle, it allowed a firm footing that when the enemy was going to attack, that they would be able to hold their ground and hold it well. And I think Paul here is reminding us that we need to be able to have firm footing. 
You know, I talked about earlier the transition from becoming a Floridian to becoming a Coloradan. Well, as Coloradans, we know, right, that the conditions in Colorado can change pretty rapidly. And if you at all have a love for hiking or the outdoors, you know very well that you can be even in the middle of May and you can hike in the Colorado mountains and end up finding what? All four seasons in one day. (laughs) And you can literally be in a muddy trail, then walk a few more feet, and then all of a sudden it's icy, walk a few more feet, it's dry, walk a few more feet, it's snowy, and you see it all. So what is so important in order to be able to handle those elements? The right kind of gear. So what would be, at least on the top of most people's list, when you're going on a hike in Colorado, is a good set of shoes, boots, something that has good gripping so that you do not slide around. And it happens every single time I invite, and I'm sure you probably have your own humorous stories of inviting family members who are from other states and what happens when you bring them out here. For one, they go up a flight of stairs and they're like, (laughs) where's all the air? And then the next thing is, is while they're on the trail, they look like they're clowns ice skating around as they try to hold on to their footing. Well, I think Paul in a very similar way, is telling us that we need to be ready to, to t- tell other people the truth that's in us, the hope that's in us, but that we also need to be people with firm footing. And how do we have firm footing? Well, we need to be able to be people of peace. That means that God's word, God's salvific act needs to be living in us and through us. I have a tough question to ask those that are listening today, whether it be on the stream or here in the congregation or in the podcast later. When you are in somebody else's life, whether it be your spouse's life, a family member, a friend, or a stranger on the street, do they feel a greater peace with you in their lives? Or do they feel more unrest, chaos, a lack of peace in their lives when you are in their life? Because you see, I believe God desires for us to be bringers of peace to other people. That we fight the enemy, we fight the world, not by, through violence, but through the peace of God. And the question that I have for you is when you are in somebody else's life, do they feel a stronger sense of peace? If the answer to that question is no, then I think it is worth examining for yourself the reasons why. Now I get it. There are, there are people out there that are so stubborn and set in their ways that when they see you, they see an immediate uh, an immediate adversary to their way of life, right? They see an immediate adversary to their truth because as Christians, we hold to a certain covenant. But I think for the most part, we as people need to be bringers of peace. And I think that when we are in the lives of other people, they should feel a greater sense of peace within their lives through you. Why? Because Christ is, is in you, and if Christ is in you, he is a bringer of peace into this world, and he wants to bring peace 
through you. Amen? The last couple of items that I will share today are the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation. If you didn't know this, the shield of faith, the shield of faith, it was most likely thought of as the Roman scutum. And the Roman scutum was a door-like shield. And it was very strategically designed. It was slightly curved. It was a wooden shield. And they would put leather on the outside of it. And what does the word of God say that the shield of faith helps with? It helps prevent the fiery darts, the fiery arrows that the enemy sends our way. Well, the way that the Roman shield would work is the Romans would take their shield and they would do what was called a Roman locking system. And that was, they would number, the people would uh, number in rows, both in rows this way, or columns in rows, and they would line themselves back, and each Roman soldier would hold out their shield, whether through the front or the top. And by doing that, they were almost like an armored convoy, an armored tank that would move and march forward. And the leather on their shield that when the enemy would go and dip his arrow in oil and fire it off to the Romans, that leather would squelch the fire and it would cause the arrow to become ineffective and the fire to be extinguished. And I think what Paul is trying to let us know here is that we need to remain rooted in our faith, that it is through our faith in Jesus Christ and our trust in God that when arrows are fired at us, when life causes us to feel like it is not going the way that it ought to go and we feel the enemy or life weighing down on us, our shield of faith allows us to look past the natural into the spiritual, and it allows us to trust that God is who he says he is, that we could take him at his word, and that we can continue to trust what he has for us, amen? That regardless of the situations that we face, that the enemy cannot ultimately harm us, that we can remain firm. And I think it offers a secondary illustration that I'm probably gonna stretch Paul for, but I think is still equally true, that the shield of faith is most effective in the company of other people, amen? That, that truly Rome was effective in its military conquest because each Roman soldier had a, 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 a warrior's duty to hold up that shield no matter what because that shield was not only a shield that protected themselves, but it protected their brothers next to them. And that they would have to hold up that shield no matter what. And I think that that happens to this day within churches where faith is celebrated. That my faith is able to encourage your faith. And that your faith is able to encourage my faith. And that in moments of trials and tribulations, our faith together allows us to extinguish the fiery arrows of the enemy. Amen? 
The last item that we'll talk about today is the helmet of salvation. And it's a simple, simple, simple illustration that I think Paul is trying to be mindful of. And it's simply that salvation is a gift. It is a crown that we get to adorn on our own heads and that we need to always be mindful of this free gift that has been given to us. Salvation is a gift from God. And I've preached about this before and I'll say it again. Never forget who you were before you were Christ's. Because far too often, I think the time between when we become Christians and where we are now can create a separation in our mindset that we could forget what it was like to live without Christ. And in some ways, in doing that, what ends up happening is is we become prideful in our own faith as if the righteousness and the way that we're living was through our own doing and not through Jesus's work in us. And we, can, we must never forget that the goodness is, that is in our lives is a product of our King. It's a product of God working in us. And that we are to bring this good news of salvation to the world. There's one more piece of the full armor of God, and that specifically is the sword of the spirit. And I'm gonna talk about that next week. And the reason why is, is because it's the only piece of armor that is truly offensive. Offensive meaning that you actually attack with. And we're gonna talk more on why that is so next week. But church, as we explored these five different pieces of what comprises the armor of God, I think the most important thing for us to continue to remember is that God gives us the tools to stand our ground. God gives us the tools to stand our ground. If you are not standing your ground, if you feel like life is perpetually met with failure in living out your faith, then I would ask you to explore for yourselves those pieces of armors that I had mentioned today and ask yourself, what is missing? What is missing? Because in truth, if, God, if we're to take God's word seriously, then I believe that if we have every single one of those pieces of armors on, then we should be able to do what? Stand firm. So if we're not standing firm, that means there's something missing. It's as simple as that. If you're not standing firm, there's something missing. You're not putting on one of God's armors. And the attacks that you're experiencing, the failure that you're undergoing, the sin that you are giving into is simply because you're not taking up God's full armor. And I believe that God wants us to be able to take up his full armor. Amen. Here's the beautiful news that that is not meant to discourage any one of you, but rather it's just meant to help you figure out for yourself 
how you can more faithfully put on the free and full armor of God that he gives us so, so that you may stand firm against the enemy. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that your word gives us a blueprint for understanding how to fight the enemy. That you give us tools, Lord, to garner around ourselves in order to resist evil to not just even resist it, but to oppose it, to stand as a guard for your kingdom in this world that needs to hear the hope that you bring. Help us, Lord, find that victory in our own lives so that we can bring that victory into the lives of other people. We thank you, Lord, that you give us the tools to stand our ground. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.